1,194, 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we're starting halfway through verse 2 under the heading False Teachers and the Love of Money. Uh, through this, uh, uh, this is a letter of Paul to Timothy, and he's been giving teaching to um, Timothy uh, about uh, uh, the way the church should behave. And he continues, These are the things that you to teach and to insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a trap and many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Thanks, Philip. Well, do keep your Bibles open, as Philip said, and uh, we're going to pray and ask God to help us to understand his word. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are God. You speak to us through your word. And we pray that you would help us to understand it and to apply it to our lives. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 16. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. We're uh, in a series, we've taken a few weeks out to think about what God and the Bible has to say about money, about how we think about it, about how we use it, how much we should keep, how much we should spend. And it's been a really valuable time. Jesus talks in the New Testament lots about money. And there's lots that impacts our lives, isn't there, in this whole area of money. Even today, we've decided what, what cereal we have that will have cost money, or what clothes we wear, or how we get to church. All of these decisions that we make, even without thinking about it, are impacted by money. So actually, it's good for us just to take a breather, for a few weeks, and to think about money and the Bible. And specifically, what we're thinking about this morning is the danger of making money ultimate, of making money the thing that we build our life upon. Now, I imagine if someone's to ask you, do you build your life on money? Well, of course, everyone would say no, whether you're a Christian here today or not. You wouldn't say, oh, I build my life on money. But as we see in today's passage, there are subtle ways that that kind of thinking can seep into our lives and the way that we behave. Because actually, we have to be honest with ourselves, don't we? We all want to build our life on something. We all want to be able to look to the future with a sense of security. We all want to experience happiness and and joyful times, don't we? And particularly if we have anxiety or concern over the future, then it can seem like money ticks a big box, doesn't it? We've got to be honest about this. It feels like money can can provide, money can do stuff for us 
maybe in a way where we don't have to worry about things. Perhaps you're a particular moment in, in your life at the moment where you've got decisions to make and money are going to impact those decisions. Maybe about what college you go to or, or university or decisions about work, whether you go for that other job to get the better pay or maybe as you're approaching or as you are in retirement. We want to think about what the Bible has to say about how we make those kind of decisions. But there's a warning, isn't there? We've seen that in this passage. And and what Jesus says, the Bible's warning is if we make money ultimate, if we make it the thing that we look to for help, excuse the pun, but we will end up shortchanged. It makes a lousy master. So there's two things I want us to see from this passage this morning. The first is a warning and the second is an encouragement. The first thing is we're thinking about this, your greatest gain The first thing is to beware the allure of financial gain. See it for what it is and see the temptations and the dangers that are involved with it. And secondly, the positive, to seek the gain that cannot be taken away. It's not all doom and gloom. It's not like the Bible says you should use your money like this. But there's really good reasons. Actually, God wants us to experience the greatest gain. And he has made that possible. So let's think about the warning first and to beware the allure of financial gain. The first thing uh, that we see in our passage, we're going to pick it up from the beginning, is uh, that Paul tells us that financial gain, if we make that ultimate, that it is an incredibly short-sighted way of living our life. Have a look at what he says, that second bit under false teachers. Verse two, these are the things you are to teach and insist on. So just like Timothy, his friend was to teach about money and how the church should use it. So we are to do the same. We want to be obedient to that. Verse three, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. So that is what Paul is concerned with, this godly teaching, the teaching of Jesus in terms of who Jesus was, what he came to do, came to be our saviour. And this whole way of godly teaching about how the church should live, how we should use money is what we're thinking about today. He said the people that teach not what Jesus teach, but teach their own agenda. What does he say they're like? He says they're conceited. Basically, what he's saying is these people are puffed up windbags with an overinflated sense of their own importance. He's saying this is not what ministers, this is not what teachers in God's church should be like. As we'll see in a moment, they've got a short-sighted understanding of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow God. They should be humble and teachable. That is what a quality of a teacher should be like in the church. They should have a burning heart, not a big head, as one writer put it. But these people are conceited. They don't understand the seriousness of what they are teaching and they are leading people astray as a result. Now, it almost sounds offensive, doesn't it? Paul saying this about these teachers. It sounds offensive to our modern ears, perhaps. But you've got to realize the seriousness of this. These people are standing opposed to the gospel. They are causing people to believe false things about God and and how we live our lives and how we use money. That is why Paul is so serious and he doesn't mince his words. These are not the kind of people who should be teaching in the church. And we see that because actually we look a bit further, we dig a bit deeper in verse four. we, We have a look at their motivations. 
Have a look. Verse 4. He says they have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words. So they've got this, this desire to be, to be bad-mouthing one another. Instead of looking how they can encourage the church, how they can be, if we've been singing about keep on running the race, how we can keep on going in our walk with Christ, they're much more concerned about controversies and bad-mouthing and rotten talk. Look what happens. It results in envy, strife, malicious talk. They're bad-mouthing each other and it leads to backstabbing, evil suspicions, constant friction between people of a corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth. These people are wrong at the most fundamental level. They have ignored the goodness of the gospel, that Christ came to save us and rescue us, and and how we should live that out in the church, haven't they? But actually, this isn't just an issue for teachers 2,000 years ago. It continues to plague the church today. I was having a conversation with someone this week who who comes from Brazil and has been jaded by their experience of the church and what they have seen as huge levels of corruption in this particular denomination that they were from. People, these pastors with five uh, five figure salaries a month and driving amazing cars and multi-million dollar mansions. And it's completely jaded his experience of the church. It's a terrible thing. It's not just a problem then, it's a problem today. But actually, it's unnerving to us. It's not just people who teach who are susceptible to this. Have a look at that second bit of verse 5. These people who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. It almost sounds preposterous, doesn't it? Thinking that that godliness or, or following Jesus, this is what godliness means here, or religion by you know following God is a way to make a quick buck. That's how short-sighted they are. They think religion is about gain in this life, specifically in the area of money. Their motivation is greed. Jesus, again, picks up on this idea. He says this in John chapter 11, talking about these kind of people. He's talking about them as hired hands. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming. So when people in these churches see danger coming, what do they do? Well, they leave the sheep and they flee and the wolf snatches them and scatters them because their motivation isn't about encouraging the church. It's what can they get out of it? But if we if we keep on going with this thinking and think about what is at the root of this this motivation that thinks that godliness, that following Jesus on its own isn't enough. Why does there have to be financial gain in it? Well, I think part of it shows the fact that actually we have a a misunderstanding of what the gospel means. It's more about what we can give and not about what we receive. It's like thinking, well, what have I given to God? Well, I've given my time. I've given my money. I've tried to be a good person. I've come to church regularly. So my expectation is what can I get in return? When you start going down that line, it, it... it becomes more possible for us to think that actually I'm not necessarily immune from that kind of thinking sometimes. I've given God my, my best and I deserve something in return, surely. That's the motivation, this idea, the thinking that godliness is a means to financial gain. We need to beware the allure of financial gain and that desire for things in our lives. None of us are immune. And we see that thought. We're just going to skip on a few verses down to verse 9. 
Paul says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation. And at this point, he's talking about people who who build their life on on this pursuit of money as a thing that they look to to trust, thing that gives them satisfaction and hope in life. And it becomes like a, a almost like a stack of dominoes. Once one goes, all the others follow. And, and look what he says in verse 9. He says, those who want to get rich, well, what happens? The flick of the domino, they fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires. They end up doing things perhaps they would never once thought they would do to pursue that gain of finance, financial safety, making decisions, managing to justify those decisions out of that desire for wealth. And that goes into harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. It keeps on getting worse and worse and worse. But the scary thing is none of us are immune from that. That desire for earthly pleasures. Just just one more thing won't make a difference. But as Paul points out here, it is a slippery slope to regret. If we're honest with ourselves, I wonder then, how might that affect our decision making at those moments I was talking about? Whether, you know, what, what college or university we might go to or whether we think about getting that, that, going for that raise or that different job. How we prioritize money. It doesn't mean that, that going for that raise is a bad thing. But actually we need to think about what are our motivations behind our financial decisions. It's not the bank account necessarily that we're to think about, but it's our heart, how we respond to these things. You see, the, as so often is the case, the heart of the issue when it comes to our finances is the issue of the heart. And none of our hearts love what they should. We see that in verse 10. Look at this, this famous verse that's often slightly tweaked. Let's look at what it means. Verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now, Paul isn't saying money is the root of all evil. I've often heard it spoken of like that. He isn't saying money is a root of all kinds of evil. What Paul is saying is the love of money, or what can be translated the lust for money, is a root of all kinds of evil. Money isn't the problem. Money isn't sinful, is it? Money is just a, a thing that we use. Money can be used for good. Think about all the money that's been used for good to, to rebuild the youth and community center. Or money that's used to support our mission partners and, and the, the spread of the gospel. Money can be used for good. But the love of money is a sin. It shows that our hearts, our love is disordered. And notice what Paul says. It is a root of all kinds of evil. I've been amazed looking out along along the roads here. And while all the grass and everything is dying back, the one thing that are growing are the weeds. These resilient weeds, which are joy to any farmer and any gardener, I'm sure. These weeds that, that grow up. And the problem with the weed is, is, as you know, if you if you cut off the head or even what you can see, it hasn't dealt with it, has it? The root is still there and it will come up perhaps in another place or come up again and you think, well, I've only just chopped that down, and there it is again. And so it is with, with how we treat our finances. If we think, well, we can just uh, stop, you know, stop that particular thing, stop getting that, I don't know, um, that expensive coffee every day or whatever, think, okay, I'm fine now. But that's like cutting off the top of the weed. It hasn't dealt with the root. Perhaps in things like that, there is a deeper root that we need to be dealing with. 
a love that will show itself in different ways. Treating the, the surface isn't any good. We need to get down to the root and do the business there. And we'll see in a moment how this good news of a gain that we should pursue can help us with that. We've got to be honest, admit that our loves, our hearts are disordered, aren't they? Just because we love something doesn't mean it's good. We can love things in a way that are sinful. And that's what Paul is saying here with the love of money. We need to realize this. Otherwise, look what the consequences can be in the second part of verse 10. He says, some people eager for money. So this is the people who have got that love of money in their hearts. They want to build their lives on that. Look what happens. They're eager for money. They've wandered from the faith. They no longer look to God as their hope, as their trust, but they look to their own provision instead. They've wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. It's a truly sad ending, isn't it? Which is why we need to, we need to pay attention to this warning as we think about our hearts and how we respond to money. Earlier on, I was saying that we, we often have a, 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 th- a thought that, that it's all about what we have given to God, how we come to church, how we, how we give stuff to God, maybe even given our money and think about what we can get in return. We need to change that thinking. We need to allow the truth of the gospel to change that thinking, not about what I have I given and what can I get in return. That's what these teachers were doing. We want to think about what has he given us? We've been thanking God today, haven't we? He's given us life. He's given us so much. He's given us everything that we need for a relationship with him. And what a cost. The cost of his son. He has given us everything. So it's not about what have I given and what can I get in return. It is about what has he given us and what can I give in return? If we try and make money our God, well, it's a lousy God, isn't it? And look where it leads us. Those people who wandered from the faith, pierced themselves with many griefs. It leads to destruction. Well, that's the warning that Paul gives us. But the encouragement we see in these verses as well, to seek the gain that cannot be taken away. And the word that Paul uses uh, twice in these few verses is contentment. An ease with where we are at, even if we are in difficult financial circumstances, as the Apostle Paul frequently found himself and as our Lord Jesus found himself in. Firstly, we see that he talks about a better kind of wealth. We want to think about how we can seek the gain that cannot be taken away. He tells us about a better kind of wealth. Verse six, he says, but godliness with contentment, there's that word, is great gain. Paul is saying a relationship with God is enough, whatever our circumstances. He's talking about a better kind of wealth, not a relationship plus I'll be satisfied, I'll be content when I've got God and other stuff. But in terms of what my heart looks to for satisfaction, God is the only one who will satisfy it. Trying to fill the emptiness in our hearts with money and with things will not satisfy. We know that, don't we? It may make us feel good for a bit, but it ultimately let us down. Pursuing money is a poor reflection to pursuing God. Think about it. If we're trying to look to money to give us a sense of identity, I'm someone who's worked hard. I have someone who 
it has uh, you know, built up an identity for myself, well, that can still let us down, can't it? But the identity that we can find in Christ can never let us down. It can never be snatched away. Or maybe we look to money to give us joy, happiness, give us things that we wouldn't be able to do if we didn't have money. Well, yes, those things can be good, but that's not an everlasting joy, is it? It's not unperishable. It's not the kind of joy that can deal with whatever life throws at us, that keeps us buoyant, that keeps us going. This kind of contentment, this kind of godliness, a contentment in God alone needs nothing more to satisfy the deep place within our soul. Whatever we look for in money, the truth is it can only be found in Christ. And perhaps you are someone who feel your conscience triggered by this. You are looking in money for what only Christ can give you. Well, the great news is turn to Christ. That deep satisfaction, the things that you look for in your possessions and your money, even those good things can only be found ultimately in Christ. Paul wants us to to be encouraged with this greater wealth, this greater gain that he calls it. And secondly, he tells us that this greater gain cannot be taken away. Look at verse 7. This is a famous verse. You, You might often hear it at funerals. He says, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Now, that's that's uh, that's good wisdom there, isn't it? You know, we come into the world with nothing and, and we leave it with nothing. But what Paul is saying is don't try and build up things in this life that you can't take with you. And actually, we're going to think about this. This is a really refreshing way, I think, that Christians can think about money. We don't we, we see it has a purpose, but we don't make it ultimate. We don't try and build it up because we know we can't take it with us. Think about the pharaohs. In ancient Egypt, you go to the Valley of the Kings and Howard Carter, who discovered the tomb of Tutankhamun in the 1920s, and all this amazing gold, all these treasures that the pharaohs had been buried with, the idea of taking it with them to the next life. But those treasures are still there, aren't they? Well, lots of them have been stolen. They're either still there in the tombs, they haven't found them yet, or they're in a museum or tomb robbers had stole them and melted them down or, or whatever. None of those pharaohs could take those possessions with them. They thought they could. They were preparing all this as payment for the afterlife, but they're still there or they're in a museum. Don't try and build up things in this life that you can't take with you. This is really good wisdom. And it shapes how we think about money as something that is temporary. It has a purpose in this life, but it is not ultimate. We should not build our lives on it. Instead, we want to think about something that we can take with us. Because Paul would agree that there is something that we can take with us into the next life. It isn't possessions, it isn't money, but it is treasure. Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 talks about treasure in heaven and building that up, about having peace with God, a relationship with God. That is the one thing, that is the only thing that any of us can take with us. Not our finances, not our our monetary security, but peace with God, treasure in heaven and the joy of being with him. That is the one thing that we can take. That is the gain that cannot be taken away. So we want to think about how these these truths of Christian living affect our money. So we finish up with with verse eight. And Paul tells us how how this gives us peace with our money today. I found this the most challenging verse as I was preparing this, actually. 
He says, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Look at that word, content. We will be satisfied if we have the bare essentials. Now, Paul isn't talking about self-sufficiency. He's not saying we just need to get on and and sort ourselves out and and just try and work hard on our own. He's talking about Christ-sufficiency. But a contentment, a satisfaction with just the bare essentials that we need. May as well confess about uh, about my love of coffee shops uh, and going there. And um, uh, I was sat there this week and, and I did a little exercise that I heard someone else do in terms of running a little list with two columns, one on each side, one saying need and the other saying want. And just in a few minutes, so perhaps you can try this this week and, and think about how this, this shows what we need or what we think we want. And, and put in one column need, well, Paul says we can put food and clothing, so that's all right. And then think about justifying those things that we say we need or those things actually we just want. And as, the, as, as I spent, that, spent doing that for a few minutes, it became harder and harder to justify those things that I always thought that I needed, but actually it's just something I want. I'm not quite sure how I'm going to move, move on from that, but, but there's some, some, some hard decisions that need to be made in terms of things that I thought that I needed, and maybe they're just things that I want. Particularly if I'm looking to those things that I think I need to give me a level of contentment. I can feel okay. I've got this, this, this. Paul says we don't need those things to be content. But we've got to, we've got to admit, haven't we, that there, for probably for most of us, this is a theoretical, I don't know, for, for some of us, this is a theoretical discussion about if we were in that situation, we could say we were content. There'll be people here today who are living this out. Who are trying to scrape enough together for food and for clothing. And have to, to live out that contentment. And that is a hard thing to do. But Paul says it is possible. Paul says, even in those moments, we can feel a deep level of satisfaction. We see that lived out in Christians around the world, don't we, in in countries much poorer than this. To be content, even with having hardly anything at all, and living that out. Far much better to do that than to desire to have more and more and more and never enjoy anything we have. C.S. Lewis puts it uh, like this. He's talking about about greed in terms of food, but it it applies the same for money as well. We never get, say, even the sensual pleasure of food at its best when we are being greedy. And actually the same can be true for money as well. We never enjoy using money in a way that honors God when we make it the ultimate thing, when we make money our God. We seek the gain that cannot be taken away And we find that money has its place, doesn't it, in supporting that goal. We want to hear God's warning not to seek financial gain, not to make that our master, as Jesus said. It makes a lousy master. It keeps on demanding more and more and more. But to seek the gain that cannot be taken away. We're going to have a, a couple of moments now just to just to think and just to reflect and, and to pray about what we've heard. I'm going to lead us in a short prayer. And then after a few moments of time to reflect, Chris is going to come up and introduce the next song. 
So let's just be quiet as I lead us in a short prayer and then we've got some time to reflect. Maybe think about the things that we, we think we need and we think we want or, or agree to do that this week. Let me lead us in a prayer. Lord God, we thank you for the gift of money to give us what we need and often so much more. Help us not to serve money, but to serve you and be free to enjoy the things you give us without making them ultimate. Amen.